Good to have you here this morning. So glad you're here. And it's obvious that the Holy Spirit is here too this morning, isn't he? Yeah, thankful for that. And we're in Acts chapter 2, talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. So turn with me there. Last week, as we got into the text, I was uh, bringing up the Hebraic meaning in the text. I thought it was uh, beneficial and meaningful for you. We're looking at uh, the day of Pentecost, when it has fully come or has been fulfilled. And Pentecost, uh, the Hebrew word is? Shavuot. You could try to say it, Shavuot, right? But the three major feasts of Israel that every male Jew had to attend if he was in a certain proximity uh, to Jerusalem, what were those three feasts? Passover, called Pesach. Pentecost, called Shavuot, and Tabernacles, called Sukkot, Sukkot. Now, from a Jewish understanding, the Hebraic understanding, they felt that these three major feasts really represented, first, the creation of the state of Israel, the nation of Israel, not, not a governmental state, but the people of God. That happened during Pesach. Why? Because they came out of Egypt. They were in bondage for 400 years. They went in a family of Jacob, 70 people, came out approximately 2.5 million, a nation, strong. They were birthed on Pesach. Just as we see that uh, the church, each of you, Christina, you in January, birthed by the Spirit of God, right? Uh, and why? Because of that Pesach of Christ, where Christ himself was crucified on our behalf, where he died for our sins, where we could experience that new birth. So Passover not only speaks of the birth of the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt, Passover speaks of the new birth that is afforded to all who would believe and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Shavuot, or Pentecost, from a Jewish reckoning and understanding, they call that the Feast of Revelation, or the Feast of Weeks, found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But why do they call it the Feast of Revelation? Because they believe this, that's the day or the time period in which Moses received the Torah, the law, the light of God, the will of God, the revelation of God. And that revelation of God wasn't written upon their hearts, but it was written on tablets of stone. But what Pentecost represents when Pentecost had been fulfilled here in Acts chapter 2, is how now Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is being fulfilled, where it's being written upon our hearts, the law of God. When the law first came to Moses, right, it was written on tablets of stone. It was external. And who could keep the law? Who? No one. No one could ever keep the law. But God said there would be a time coming in which he would pour out his spirit upon his people and he would write his law upon their hearts and he would be their God and they would be his people. That Pentecost, the revelation of God. So we have Pesach, the birth of the nation, opportunity for a new birth for everyone who would believe when Jesus Christ fulfilled Pesach. Shavuot, the revelation of God, the light of God being given to the children of Israel, and the Torah really expresses the moral purity, the ethical and moral purity of God, which is a standard we could never meet, could we? No. No. But we see when Sabaoth had been fulfilled here in chapter 2, God writes his law upon our hearts now, and he has fulfilled the law on our behalf, praise God. So from the Jewish reckoning, Passover, the nation was birthed. Shavuot, or Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, the revelation of God was given to them, an understanding of the person of God, the will of God, the ways of God. And then the last major feast that every Jew had to attend was which? Sukkot, or Tabernacles. And his name shall be called Emmanuel, which means... God with us, God tabernacling with us. And I believe that, that in all probability, I can't be dogmatic about this, but I believe in all probability Jesus was born on the Feast of Tabernacles. God with us, dwelling among us. Now, there are the Jews, from a Hebrew perspective, they see that Feast of Sukkot as the redemption of Israel when they went into the promises of God, into the promised land. 
But for you and I, it's an entirely different matter, isn't it? No. We've already entered into the eternal life through Christ. So I wanted to give you that perspective from a Jewish understanding. So when they look back at Pentecost, or they don't call it Pentecost, they call it Feast of Weeks or Shavuot, they're looking back at commemorating the giving of the law. What else happened on that day that the Jewish people memorialize or honor? Who died on that day? David. David. David, the beloved. Yeah, and so they, they, and you'll see this in a moment when we get into Peter's second sermon or second speech there before his brethren, uh, one of, uh, second of seven speeches that Peter's going to make. But he'll make reference to David that David's dead, buried, and in the tomb. And I think he's remembering the fact that in ancient Hebraism, as he was growing up, they would commemorate the death of David on Sebald. But we know it's not just the birth of the nation that we're talking about, not just the enlightenment of the nation, not just the redemption of the nation, but all of these feast days of Israel speak of the birth of you and I, his church. The enlightenment that he gives us through his word, all of the Bible, not just the Torah, not just the first five books. And then the redemption that are ours. We have been redeemed by the Lord through the empowering of the Holy Spirit in our life. Isn't that wonderful? Mm -hmm. uh, and I also said that on Pentecost, here in Acts chapter 2, historically, it wasn't just the birth of the church, although we see it that way from a Gentile perspective, right? But it was really the birth of what? Messianic Judaism. Why? Because we know from the previous chapter that there was a number of people gathered together in the upper room. They weren't in the temple. They weren't in the temple precincts, but they were in the upper room. Why were they in the upper room? Waiting. Waiting. But they were also in the upper room because they were in hiding and in fear, in fear for their life of what the Romans, and more importantly, what the religious Jews, the religious established system of Pharisees and Sadducees would do to them because they were followers of Jesus. So that 120 were in the upper room, and no, no, I don't even know if there's 120 people in the sanctuary this morning. But can you imagine, put yourself in their sandals. What's going on in your heart, in your mind right now? You, you don't know that God is about to do something absolutely wonderful in the reception of the Holy Spirit into your life. But what's going on in your heart, in your mind right now? What are you thinking? What? They're coming for us. They're coming for us. That, that could be what they're thinking. Boy, hmm, I think they're coming for us. <laughs> and it's okay. Somebody else is coming for us, too. <laughs> what else were they thinking? They felt the, the loss of the power of Jesus being with them. Yes. So Jesus the loss of his presence. Can, can you imagine how safe they felt, how secure they felt, how provided for when Jesus was... You know, it, it had to be so cool being with Jesus all the time. You got hungry? You turned rocks into bread, you know? <laughs> how many fish you got? We got two. Let's, let's have a banquet. <laughs> Jesus, I can't see too good. <laughs> My grandfather, he says, I'm not looking too good. <laughs> well, let me just spit in your eyes. Oh, there you go. How's that? Don't need any glasses. I got this, this limp, Lord. I mean, whatever it was, whatever situation, whatever concern, whatever affliction, whatever trial, whatever need, Jesus could meet it all. And he did that for three years for them. Can you imagine? And now suddenly he's, he's gone. I, I can't, no, I cannot imagine the ache in their heart. We, we know that ache in our heart when we lose someone we love dearly in this life. And that ache is always there. But can you imagine experiencing God, experiencing Jesus in the way they did? And now he's gone. They gathered together in an upper room to comfort one another, to console one another, to weep with one another, in hope that all that he said and this promise that he would return, that he would come again, would actually be fulfilled. You know, we've been doing that for 2,000 years, haven't we? Ever since I met him 42 years ago, I've been longing for his coming. Have you? Yeah. 
So as that 120 are gathered together, they're gathered together begging and pleading and comforting one another for the promise of the Father to come upon them, for the promise of Jesus to return, because there is, listen, there is nothing more beneficial, there is nothing to be treasured more in this life than when you experience the presence of Jesus. And we do that now on a daily basis through the person of the Holy Spirit. They didn't know that was going to happen. They had really no idea what it meant, this promise from the Father. And as they gathered together in fear, in anxiety, in grief, in sorrow, in a hope, cautiously optimistic, hoping that it was all true, Jesus appears in the person of the Holy Spirit to come upon them when Pentecost had fully come. All of us can, all of us can bear testimony of how desperate we were, how longing we were, how grieved we were before the Lord came into our lives. Well, I can remember that day, 42 years ago, in the, in the forest behind my home in upstate New York, sitting at a beaver dam, a beaver pond, watching the beavers and the ducks in the pond and crying out to God because my life was falling apart. And it was my own fault. I wasn't the victim. I've never been a victim, nor have you. My sin has caused all my problems. Your sin caused all your problems. You understand that, don't you? Hmm? But I cried out to God in my desperation, in my grief, in my loneliness, in my sorrow, in my loss, in my want, in my lack. And I walked into the woods that morning one way, and I came out another. Because I met him. His Holy Spirit filled my heart and my life. And only he can do that. You can't will that. You can desire it. You can pray for it. But only God can bring that about. We're waiting for the Holy Spirit even now, aren't we? In a, in a, in a new way. Now, there's some reason to believe that there's an actual revival taking place in Ashbury University, Wilmore, Kentucky. There's a true revival that's occurring, but there's also, at the same time, and I've been observing this in some of the videos I've been watching, there's a counterfeit revival. And in every single revival that's ever occurred throughout history, there's always been God's work, and Satan has been trying to counterfeit it and steal the hearts of people away. But there's something wonderful happening. There's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurring even now. Why? Because I believe we're in the last days. That Jesus is preparing his bride. And how many of you have that hunger, that thirst, that longing? Tasha, last Wednesday night, you asked me about 10 virgins didn't you? And she wanted to know the understanding of that parable. You have to ask somebody wiser than me. But parabolic literature is the most difficult literature in the Bible to interpret. It really is. I read one scholar who said you shouldn't even attempt to interpret parabolic literature until you have at least 30 years of study. But let me foolishly jump in. The parable of the ten virgins most theologians agree it speaks of the church. Five were wise, five were foolish. The mystery kingdom, beloved, and I taught you about the mystery kingdom. The one word to describe the mystery kingdom? Christendom. That's right. There are the foolish and there are the wise in Christendom. The wise... The wise had their lamps burning, as did the foolish. What's the lamp speak of? Your life. The lamp is your life. What does the oil in the lamp speak of? The Holy Spirit. The, Holy, the oil in the lamp speaks of the Holy Spirit. Your lamp speaks of your life. To try to gain some understanding in what Jesus is teaching us through that parable, how it relates to what I'm talking about right now in our longing for the Holy Spirit, is that the five wise continued to have their life filled with the Holy Spirit. They had a reservoir of the Holy Spirit. 
as Ephesians declares, be ye filled. And the text declares in the Greek grammar that constant filling. Wouldn't you like to fill your car up one time and never have to do it again? But there's a constant need to surrender, to yield, to humble ourselves before God and be filled with his Holy Spirit. And so the wise, the wise were in continual state of an, a, a conscious awareness of God and his presence and his work and a longing in their hearts for him. I have longed in my heart to be with Jesus for 42 years now. I'm closer now than I've ever been. I shared with you before, I can smell his fragrance in the air. I feel his breath on my neck. It's that close, beloved. The foolish did not have that desire. They were caught up in the cares of this world. Now, we know a lot, listen, we know a lot of people who, who claim to be Christian, whether they are not only God knows for certain, but are so caught up in the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, other pleasures and material and position, that there's no regard for the second coming of Christ. There's no regard for the hour in which we're in. There's no ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. But to those of you who know and believe, the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart right now. The five wise, longing for his appearing. As Paul would say in 2 Timothy, there's now laid up for me a crown of righteousness, but not for me only, but for all those who love his appearing. And there's a double meaning there. It's his appearing that he's coming soon. Aren't all of you anxiously waiting his appearing? I hope you are. But the other meaning to that is that I so love his appearing in my life on a regular basis as I just yield to the Holy Spirit and allow him to take over where my thoughts are his thoughts. My reactions are his actions, not my own. Beloved, we need, we need to petition God, to beg God that he would fill us afresh and anew with his Holy Spirit. Because there's no other way in which you experience the presence of God than through his Spirit. Oh, I can know about God through the word. But that'll just fill my head. But the person of the Holy Spirit will allow me to know God in presence and in power. You know what I'm saying? And that's what happened to that 120 in that upper room. Listen, that's what God wants to do today. Right now, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. You don't need to run to Kentucky. You don't need to run to the top of the Himalayas. You don't need to run to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Jesus said, it is, it is your advantage that I go away. If I go away, I send another helper. In the Greek grammar, one of the same. He sends himself, the, the person of Jesus Christ, to the person and the power of the Holy Spirit to be with you right now, wherever you are. When I was in that forest in upstate New York, crying out to God, he came to me right then and there. Here's my heart, O oh Lord. Here's my heart, O oh Lord. Here's my heart, O oh Lord. Take me. And he did. So I want to tell you, you don't, you don't have to run anywhere except, except in your heart, run to the Lord, asking him to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And these 120 were never the same again. Were they fearful now? No. They ran out in the streets with boldness, declaring the gospel of God. We see in a moment here, there was another Peter who surfaced as a result of the Holy Spirit coming upon his life. And that's, that's the mark of the baptism of the Holy Spirit in your life, is that boldness to share the scriptures in love, in love. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, one mind, one heart, one purpose, one desire. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Scripture gave them utterance. Okay, we want to talk once again. Uh, I think we have some new folks here. If you're in here, in here for the first time, just raise your hand. You're here for the first time? Yeah, very good. Okay. And then those of you who've been here a while, you probably won't remember anyway, so I'll refresh your mind. <laughs> We're talking about the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And so go with me to John chapter 20. 
have a new Bible I'm breaking in. I, my old one's falling apart. Now, in chapter 20, it begins by saying, Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Well, it was early and was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. What's Ebenezer mean? Rock of help. Who's our rock of help? Who's our Ebenezer? Jesus is, right? Yeah. But that stone had been rolled away, right? And, and when we began the book of Acts, I did the introduction. I said, the angel took that stone. What did he do with it? Throw it in the sea of the world, and it began to ripple and ripple and ripple. And we're going to see the ripple effects in the book of Acts. We went and rehearsed some of them in the introduction a couple of weeks ago. But nonetheless, this is the first day of the week, the first day of the resurrection. The tomb is empty. What day of the week is this? Sunday. What feast is that? The Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of First Fruits was never given on a specific day of a specific Jewish month. The Feast of First Fruits, as described in Leviticus 23, was always celebrated on the day after the normal Saturday Sabbath, immediately after Passover. You got that? Good. It's always celebrated on the day after the normal Saturday Sabbath, immediately after Passover. So what day of the week would it always be? Sunday. Sunday. And in the, in the year in which Jesus was crucified, buried and rose from the dead, it was the 17th day of the Jewish month? Nizan. Nizan. Feast of first fruits. Jesus rose from the dead. It's beyond coincidence that on that same day, a different year, of course, but on that same day, millennium before, Noah and his family experienced the ark resting. And the door opened. The 17th day of Nizan. What did that mean? A new opportunity, a new world for Noah and his family to walk into. Wow. What else happened on that day? Years later, after the ark rested, Israel walked across the Red Sea on dry land. 17th day of the Jewish month of Nizan, a new opportunity, a new world, a new life for all of Israel, out of bondage. And what happened in really truly fulfilling the 17th day of Nizan, that feast of first fruits, Jesus rose from the dead. Opportunity for a new life for everyone who would believe, available to everyone and anyone who would accept the truth. Amen? Yeah. So this is the first day of the week. It was the 17th day of the Jewish month of Nizan, and Jesus rose from the dead. Look at the text now, chapter 20, John's Gospel. Verse 19. But then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when is this now? The same day at evening, when is this? This is Sunday night. This is Sunday night, the same day at evening. It is the first day of what? The resurrection. Listen, pay attention to me, folks. Everybody awake? Okay. <laughs> Jesus rose from the dead, and this is the first day of his resurrection. How many days will he be seen on earth? Forty days. Forty days. But this is the first of 40 days of the post-resurrection appearances of Christ, right? And they're in the upper room. And what did he do when he came to them? He said to them, uh, verse 19, peace be with you. But in verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, then they are retained. Charlie, it's good to have you with us this morning, Charlie. Does that mean that they have the power to forgive sins? Or they have the power to retain sins? No. But that sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ would give them that power. That if as sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, one would receive the truth of the gospel, his sins were forgiven. Her sins were forgiven. If one rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, their sins are retained. They're damned. It's that simple. Someone asked me the other day, would suicide cause someone to be damned? 
If a Christian committed suicide, would he immediately go to hell? What's the answer? No. No. There's only one unpardonable sin. One. There's only one sin for which a person cannot be forgiven. And what's that sin? What you said. Rejecting the witness of the Holy Spirit with regard to the work, the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only one unforgivable sin. As the Holy Spirit is ministering to your mind and your heart, trying to expose the truth of who Jesus is, if you reject that, you've rejected God, you've rejected the opportunity for salvation. But here, Jesus breathed on them, and he said, receive the Numa Hagiosuni, the Holy Spirit now. Life, life began in Genesis, right? In the garden, as God formed man of the dust of the ground. And, and how did that life begin in that man? I think a kiss. The breath of God. But I think the breath of God was a kiss that brought him to life. And now here, it's the breath of God once again that takes these 120 and is going to give them new life. The early disciples there, the Holy Spirit came upon them. The work of the Holy Spirit is first, he is with you, right? We call that the para, the Greek preposition used to describe the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will be with you, guiding you, leading you, opening up your understanding of your mind and your heart, your eyes to see, your ears to hear of who Jesus really is. You can't do that. It never comes by the will of man, but only by the will of God, salvation. But with that power experience, Jesus was with them alongside them for three years, wasn't he? Wasn't he? Showing them, instructing them, teaching them, opening up their mind, opening up their heart, opening up their ears, their eyes, so they could eventually see who Jesus really was, the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior of the world. And then, and then now, here in chapter 20, he comes to dwell in them. In the, there's no salvation apart from the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And once you yield and you surrender your life to the Lord, to his will, to his word, to his way, the Holy Spirit comes and enters your life and empowers you to be all that he desires you to be. What day of the resurrection is this? Now go with me to the end of Luke's gospel. What day of the resurrection is chapter 24, the end of Luke's gospel? No. John 20 was the first day of the resurrection. What day of the resurrection is chapter 24 in Luke's gospel? Day 40. Thank you. This is day 40. Day 1, what happened to them? The Holy Spirit came upon them. Excuse me. The Holy Spirit came in them, right? The Holy Spirit came in them. They became born again. Born from above, right? Now, this is the 40th day of the resurrection. They already have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Look what Jesus tells them. Chapter 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all these things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Jesus did not come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law completely. On whose behalf? On yours or mine or his? On ours. He was already perfect, wasn't he? The law describes the ethical and moral purity of God. A standard we could never, ever, ever, ever meet through our obedience, through the harnessing of our flesh, our own self-discipline. No. Jesus himself became the righteousness of God on our behalf for us. But he kept the law, every bit of the law, for you and for me, that which we could never do. And he opened their understanding, verse 45, that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it was written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Repentance and remission of sins. Anything missing out of there? Wait a minute now. I understand you have to repent and be baptism necessary for salvation? 
No, don't let anybody ever tell you that. Baptism is necessary to live a completely obedient life for Christ, but baptism is not necessary for salvation. Some erroneously come away with that understanding, that doctrine, that belief through what had taken place in Acts chapter 2. But I want to make it very, very clear to you, you are saved by Christ alone. Press nothing, right? Not baptism, not circumcision, not any religious rite. Hmm? Thus it was written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to raise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, Epi, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you're in the power from on high. How do I understand this? Wait a minute, the Holy Spirit came in them on the first day of the resurrection. Here's the 40th day of the resurrection. He's telling them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the empowerment where the Holy Spirit will come upon them. The Holy Spirit is with you and then the Holy Spirit comes in you. John 20, they were born again. But what's happening at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is coming upon, epi, upon them to empower them for ministry. Do you want to be five wise or five foolish? The five wise are yielded and surrendered to God, asking him to empower them for whatever area of ministry, whatever calling you have upon my life. Lord, I don't want you to jump on board what I want my life to be. Lord, I surrender and yield my life to whatever it is you want it to be. Far, far, far too many foolish want Jesus to jump on board their agenda, their expectation, their plan for their life. You want to make God laugh? Tell him your plans. <laughs> far, far, far too few are really yielded and asking God, whatever, Lord, whatever, Lord. It's not what your will is for my life. No, whatever your will is, period. Whatever your will is, period. The me, my, and I need to come out of that. You understand what I'm saying? Now, that, that's the five whys. That, that's what happened at Pentecost. This, Luke is telling them now, on the last day of the resurrection, that Jesus declared to them, before he ascended up into the clouds, he said, go in Jerusalem and surrender. Yield yourself completely to my Father, to me, and to my Spirit. And oh, wait till you see what we're going to do. Yeah. This outpouring that's happening in Kentucky, I, I, I pray that it's exactly what God, in, well, of course it'll be exactly what God intends it to be. That's a foolish statement. I pray that God is intending to ignite a generation of Americans once again with the person of his Holy Spirit to become everything they never would have imagined. I grew up in the Jesus movement. We'll see that movie on Friday night. I'm a little concerned that it's really a promotion for one person. It's not going to truly present the story as it was. I'll give you a review after I watch it. But there was an incredible move of God's Spirit in the 60s, 70s, early 80s. We call that the, the Jesus revival, the Jesus movement, where God took a bunch of young people, a young generation that were seeking truth, fed up with the materialism and the capitalism of this day and the, and the greed and the lust and the selfishness, and, and were looking for something better, and Satan, a counterfeit, he was luring them with the music and the weed into euphoric highs with their hashish and then their acid that they were dropping, trying to experience this, this, this euphoric high, this, this oneness with God, the meaning and purpose of life. And then they, they, they came up empty. How many of those hard rock musicians are dead today because they overdosed? But, but seeking meaning, seeking purpose, seeking truth. At least they were seeking. And what happened? God led them into all truth. There was a revival of the young people in this country that, that impacted this country for decades afterwards. And many of these young people, most of them not even church, ever church, no, didn't go to seminary, but they became pastors and missionaries and other seminary professors. I mean, it's just amazing, incredible what God did to that generation that was so wise that said, oh, we're tired with all of this. It's not about my life. Show me. Show me the purpose. Show me the meaning. 
Take my life, Lord, and use it for your glory. I pray that what results out of what's happening is that many, many, many young people will come to that place and to find the true meaning of life in the purposes and wills of God for which he's created them, given them life to begin with. Wait. Go to Jerusalem, Henry. Wait until you're filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered for your ministry, right? So we have the para, the in, and now the epi. As I said to you numerous times, many Christians are on the right side of the cross, but they're on the wrong side of Pentecost because they haven't experienced that fullness, that empowering, that epi. I'll confess to you, I never, I was sharing this with the, I think it was Jason yesterday. I never read a book through in my life until I got saved. I wasn't a reader. I learned visually, you know. Show me. Don't tell me how to do it. Don't give me a manual, you know. <laughs> oh, but then I came to Emmanuel, and then I read his manual. They couldn't put it down. And now I don't know how many books I've read in my life now. Opens up the whole world of meaning. This is what occurred in Acts chapter 2. Go back to Acts chapter 2 now. That promise of the Holy Spirit that came upon them. Yes, suddenly a sound from heaven as a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Verse 3 of chapter 2, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance. There was fire. When the law was given, when they memorialized this day as being a time in which they remember the Feast of Revelation, the giving of the law, the Torah, what happened in the giving of the law? The mountain was on fire, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And no one, no animal, no beast, no person could set foot on the mountain, and if they did, what happened? Fire. All of it was external. The law, external. Here, just do it. Good luck with that, right? The fire, external. But now, listen, why well, is with the giving of the law? And how many died that day? 3,000 died that day with the giving of the law. How many are saved with the reception of the Holy Spirit? We're going to find out. 3,000. Coincidental? Not hardly. The fire of the Holy Spirit now, not on top of a mountain. Where's the fire now? In their hearts. It's not external, the law of God. Where's the law of God now? Internal, written upon their hearts. Now, I have to ask you, and you don't need to answer me. I want you to answer in the quietness of your own mind and heart. Have you experienced the fire of the Holy Spirit and the fire of his word in your heart? I remember trying to read the Bible before I experienced the Lord, and it was like eating sawdust. Boring. It meant nothing. And then the Holy Spirit came upon me. I can't put it down to this day. 42 years, I can't put it down. As Jeremiah would say, if I stopped preaching the word of the Lord, it would be, it's fire in my bones, I can't. Do you have that internal fire? Do you have his law written upon your heart? Not just in your head. As I've said numerous times, an ounce of heart knowledge is worth a ton of head knowledge. And they spoke with other tongues. And we talked about glossialia or the speaking in tongues. And, and I don't know, I don't understand why the church puts such emphasis upon the least of the gifts. Paul said this is the least. And it's the one gift that's given to edify who? You. Yourself. That's all. All the other gifts of the Holy Spirit are given for what purpose? Edify the body, the rest of the body. Now, there are some. What's the difference between being a Pentecostal, Pentecostalism, and being a charismatic? Do you know? A, a, a true Pentecostal believes you must speak in tongues in order to be saved. That the proof of your salvation is speaking in tongues. Is that true? No, it's not true. 
Now, we're charismatic. We believe in the gifts of tongues. We believe in all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But I'm not focusing on the gifts. I'm not preoccupied with the gifts of the Spirit. They don't concern me right now. God will give me whatever gift He chooses as the Spirit wills. That's what He tells me in in 1 Corinthians, doesn't He? But what do I need to be concerned about? The fruit of the Spirit. Listen to me. Far, far, far more important. Don't worry about the gifts. God will give you whatever gift you need to accomplish his purposes in your life. What I need to focus on, what you need to focus on, is the yielding to the Holy Spirit to be more loving. You think I'm loving, don't you? Talk to Miss Gail later. Sometimes I wake up and I'm like Igor. You know. Does that ever happen? It doesn't happen. I know, you're beautiful people. But when that happens, you know, I feel Igor surfacing rather than the Lord. I don't want Igor to appear. I want God to appear. I need to pray, Lord, please, your fruit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Lord. The fruit is love. The fruit is love. The fruit is love. And that's what I need to focus on. That's when I keep all my attention. Lord, allow your love, your life, your person to live through me in such a way that it will touch others and impact their life for an eternity. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The first three speak of our relationship to the Lord. The second three speak of our relationship to one another. The last three speak of my relationship to myself. And I can't be right with myself if I'm not right with others, and I can't certainly be right with others if I'm not right with God. The horizontal has everything to do with the vertical. If the vertical isn't there, the horizontal will never be there. Isn't that true? Yeah. So don't overemphasize tongues. The Bible says, be quick to and slow to. Well, that's good advice, isn't it? Now, the proper use of tongues here in chapter 2, we're going to get that described for us. And picking it up in verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone had heard them speak in their own dialectos, their own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own dialect, our own language, our own dialect specifically, in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites. I'm not saying that right, am I? Yeah. Those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own language, our own tongue, the wonderful works of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? How many of you here speak a different language other than English? I'm still struggling with English. What do you speak, Hans? German. German. Oh, very good. Now, I don't speak German. Somebody else raise their hand? What do you speak, Gina? Espanol, huh? I don't know Espanol either. I hardly know English, you know? Now, if anybody else speak another language other than German, or what do you speak? So, German also. Oh, okay. We're ganged up on. Huh? <laughs> Anyone else? Spanish? German? What is it? Sign language. I don't know sign language at all, you know? My dog does. <laughs> sign language. How long have you been doing that? That's wonderful. Yeah. No, no. I'm sorry. We'll have this discussion later. I'm curious about that. Yeah, that's wonderful. Now, if if suddenly. Assuming for the moment Hans is not a saved man, but, he, but he's seeking. He's, he's, he's out there. He's among. And I run out into the street, and I start to speak German for Hans and Sophie. The wonderful truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, all that he has done on their behalf to free them from their sins. And God is already at work in their minds and their hearts, giving them an awareness that they couldn't keep the law. Here they are, all these Jews coming from all of the known world, because that was the second of the three major feasts in which everyone had to appear. And they appeared... But there's no real revelation given to them. It's kind of rote. 
Year after year after year, we come. We come for Pesach. We come for Shabbat. We come for Sukkot. But, and how many people go through all these religious rituals over year after year after year? I can remember my, my, my father-in-law, Roberta's dad, Buster. He was a deacon in the First Reformed Church. Had no understanding of the gospel. No understanding of the Bible. He was a deacon. 77 years old, my son shares the gospel with him, he gets saved. At 77. A lot of religion. Year after year after year, this wrote religious practices meaning absolutely nothing. As dry and empty at the beginning of every holiday and feast as they were at the end. Right? And as dry and as empty at the end as they were at the beginning. And it just went on and on and on until, until this day. Can you imagine, Hans? You're one of those. So dry, so empty, so longing for the realization of God. And then I start to speak German. A language for which I have no understanding, no previous experience whatsoever. But you're understanding it. This is exactly what happened. Every one of them were speaking different languages in the specific dialect of the recipients who were there that day so that they could hear the gospel. It was used for the purpose of promoting the gospel throughout all of the known world at that time. Giving the gospel a, a jump start, you see. Yeah. Do you understand that? Yeah. That's the real purpose for the gift of tongues then. Now, we, we, have, we have a superior gift given to us, way beyond the gift of tongues that we can share with people now, and it's the completed canon of Scripture. They didn't have the New Testament then. It wasn't written then, was it? No. All they had was the Old Testament. But now we, we have the wonderful privilege of being able to have the complete canon of Scripture where we have an understanding of the old through the new and a revelation of, of the old in the new. It's a wonderful, wonderful, complete comprehensive message of God's love to a lost world that we can speak now in a common language. We don't, I don't need the gift of tongues. And what person was able to express the truth of the gospel to more nations in more languages, but he didn't speak their language, than any other man living? Who was the greatest evangelist of our time? Billy Graham. Billy Graham. He, he touched every continent and he touched almost every nation. It's, a, it's amazing. If you go to the Billy Graham Library, how many of you have not been to the Billy Graham Library? You need to go. You, you need to go. You go to the Billy Graham Library, and you go through that display, and you're, you're absolutely amazed at how profoundly God used a milk farmer's son to touch the world. And he spoke y'all. You know? <laughs> he never spoke any other language, English. And he prayed for his entire life to have received the gift of tongues and never did. Do you think he had a better gift in that anointing to be the evangelist of the world? To represent the gospel? <sighs> now, now listen to me. Don't, there's so many who are in their infancy, infantile in their thinking, who put way too much emphasis upon this gift of the Holy Spirit in tongues, which Paul said is the least. He said, I, I, I speak in tongues more than you all, but I wish that you all could prophesy, give an understanding of the Word of God to those who need to understand the Word of God. Not the foretelling of the future, but the foretelling of the Word. That's what that word prophecy means. What could this mean? Others mocking, said verse 13. They're full of new wine. They're drunk. They're intoxicated. Now, as I said, Peter's first sermon or first speech was when he got up and he said, we need to replace Judas. He was a betrayer. So we need to replace him. So God, here's one of two. You decide. And God said, neither. Right? Remember they threw lots? That was the first speech. How many speeches did Peter make throughout the book of Acts? Seven. This is the second of seven. Second of seven. But Peter, standing up, with the eleven, raised his voice and said, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour. What time is that? Nine in the morning. Shouldn't be drinking at nine in the morning. But this is that which was spoken of by Joel the prophet. 
And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on your manservants and on your maidservants I will pour out my spirit in those days, and, I will, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, contextually, the real fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 is going to happen when? I'm sorry? Yeah. During the beginning of the tribulation period, God is going to pour out His Spirit upon the Jewish people and they're going to awaken to who Jesus really is, that He is their Messiah, the Meshach Nagid, the Messiah, the King. And the Holy Spirit is going to come upon the Jewish people, the sons and daughters of Israel. And they're going to prophesy. There's going to be 144,000 Apostle Pauls running around Jerusalem at that time. So filled with the Spirit of God. Now, now Joel is prophesying this, and it will be preceding what kingdom? The millennial messianic kingdom. The thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. But here, what's happening in Pentecost, Peter is saying this is a type of what Joel has referred to. It's not the complete fulfillment of, but it's a type, a topos. And that's what he refers to it as a topos of the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. But the complete fulfillment, because did the, did the sun no longer give its light on that day? Did the moon turn blood red? No, no, no. None of those horrific things that are going to happen during that tribulation period have occurred. So the complete fulfillment of Joel chapter 2 will be towards the end of the age, the end of the church age, certainly, and the end of the period we call the times of the Gentiles, right? Because right now we're currently in the times of the Gentiles, and more specifically, we're in the church age, but that's coming to an end. And when that comes to an end, God begins to work upon the nation of Israel once again, and he's going to bring about his messianic millennial kingdom where Christ will reign for a thousand years. And amazing things will happen as the Spirit of God comes upon the children of Israel and they recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Salvation will occur. Messianic Judaism was born, birthed on Pentecost. It became the church, ecclesia, of the Gentiles because of the rejection of the Messiah by Israel. How could they reject their own Messiah? Why would they reject their own Messiah? Why would God allow that to happen? So that you could be saved. That's right, Pam. God purposed, if you read Romans 9, 10, 11, God purposed, God predetermined the rejection of the Messiah of Jesus by Israel for the salvation of the Gentiles so that the church could be birthed. But when the church age is over, that plan of God for Messianic Judaism will be fulfilled when the Spirit will be poured upon them. we got a few more minutes before I let you go. If there is anyone here who's never opened up their heart and their life to allow the healing power of Jesus to heal you from wounds that you've inflicted on yourself or others may have inflicted upon you, but more importantly than everything else is to forgive you of your sins. Anybody here not lie? Anybody here never lie? Good, you're all telling the truth. Because when you lie, you become a liar. Any of you ever steal anything? Yeah. It could, yes, it could be as simple as a paperclip. What does that make you? A thief. A thief. Anybody ever use the Lord's name in vain? In the heat of anger? Yeah. What does that make you? Wow. Blasphemer. And we can go down the list. But if you've broken one law, God says you've broken it all. There's no way you can make entrance into my kingdom. And we've all confessed, at the very least, we're lying, thieving, blasphemers. I'm far more than that was, was. But I have been washed, but I have been cleansed, but I've received the forgiveness of God through the person of Jesus Christ and the work of his Holy Spirit in sanctifying me and cleansing me. Now, what I want you to understand is it's, it's a work of Christ alone and not of man. Go with me to John's Gospel, first chapter.
So this morning, I'm like the Apostle John, John the Baptist, trying to open up your eyes to the truth of who Jesus is. I'm not the light. He's the light. I'm not the Savior. He's the Savior, right? I'm not the healer. He's the healer. You know, John the Baptist never performed any miracles. Not one. Not one miracle. But Jesus said of John, there is none. Of those born of women, there is none greater than John. He was so submitted and yielded to Jesus and the message of Christ alone. Look what it says here. John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light. Who was the light? Jesus. Jesus, the light of the world, the light, love, and life of the world, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of the light that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Oh, our nation needs to know him more now than ever before. He came to his own, to the Jews, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. And he gave them a gift. What gift did he give them? And the life was in the light, and he was the light of men. What gift did he give them? The gift of eternal life. You ever, you ever fear of dying? Before your salvation experience, for those of you who are saved, can you remember back when you were afraid to die? You're afraid, why is this all going to end? I mean, it's just what sense does it all make? And now we don't have any fear. Why? Because I'm as dead now as I'm ever going to be. I'm as dead now, right now, as I'll ever be. Why? Because I'm in Christ. There is no life apart from Christ. If Christ were to exit the world right now, everything would die. Because he is the sustainer. He's the Bekoa and the Protokos. He's that laminin. He's holding all things together. In him is life, is light, is love, and no other. Now the question is, has that light, that life, that love entered into your life? And it's not by the will of men. It's by the will of God. Now, you may be here this morning, and, and, and you really don't understand what I'm talking about, because that light hasn't hit you. Now, I know there's many of you here this morning, you know exactly what I'm talking about, because we've, we've been overtaken by the light, and the life, and the love of Jesus. But if that's not you this morning, this morning is your opportunity. The Spirit is calling to you. He's been with you, he wants to be in you, and then he wants to empower. Look what John writes. And he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Now this word belief, pastuo, it means to completely surrender your life to. You know, back in 2008, it was August, and I went to a friend's wedding. And at that wedding, I met someone that I thought God was leading me to have a relationship with. And then after our friend's wedding, we had a Calvary Cafe here, and we had a couple days together, and, and I said, you know, I, I, I don't really know you, and you don't really know me, but I believe God is doing something here, and, and I trust what he's doing, and I want to ask you if you can trust what God is doing in my life, to entrust yourself to me. Would you marry me? Now, that's a big step, isn't it? I didn't know her. She didn't know me. Inside everybody you know is who? Say that again now. Listen. Inside everybody you know is somebody? And that's true. That's true. So, right? Getting to know you. <laughs> Big step. Now listen, listen to me. That's precisely, listen, to believe. To believe is putting your trust in Jesus completely when you don't fully know him. But as you get to know him more and more, that's when your faith grows. It swells because now, now you know you can trust him with everything, everything. So maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've, ne you've never really trusted Jesus. You've never really surrendered your life. It's not believing in your head. It's believing in your heart. That's what he's talking about. And how does that happen? Look, look what John writes. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood. What does that mean? Not of an ethnicity. What did the Jews think? I'm Jewish. Of course I'm saved. 
right? You know, you know how ridiculous it is for a long time in America. I'm an American, of course I must be saved, you know? And my ethnicity, right? I'm an Italian-American. I grew up in upstate New York, an Italian community. I'm an Italian. I'm a Catholic. Of course I'm. But I wasn't. And that's what he's saying. Your ethnicity won't say, yeah, and you can't be a Christian because your parents are. You can't be a Christian because your husband is. You can't be a Christian because your, your, your wife is. You can't be a Christian because your mother father It's not your ethnicity. It's not your blood. It's not the relationships you have in your family. Nor of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. What does that mean? It's not your desire. Listen, it'll, ne it'll never, ever, ever be innate within you that you want God. God works within your mind and heart for you to want him. I came to her and I said, you want me? I want you. You want me? You want anything? You know. God does the initiation. Not you. Not of blood, nor of the will of men. You would never will to, be, to come to God. Romans 5 tells us that while you were without strength, no spiritual inclination towards God whatsoever, he chose you. He made himself known to you. While you were sinners, he says, he saved you. Worse yet, he says in Romans 5, that while you were an enemy of God, he said, now stop that. Let's have a party. Why don't you come love me? Come to my house, right? That's what God has done. Not by blood, nor by the will of man. And what does he say? Nor, not by blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. What does that mean, the will of man? works, a religious system. You can never, ever, 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 ever be saved by works or by any religious system. I grew up in Catholicism, and in Catholicism, it's a work salvation. You have to obey all the sacraments of the church in the hope of salvation, a hope, a maybe, no assurance. Paul writes the first John in epistle and says, I have written these things that you may know you have eternal life. So now I know that. I know that. Not by blood, Right? not by any religious system or work that I could do, not that I even willed it, but God. God came alongside me and opened up my mind and my heart, my ears and my eyes, and I said, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Take me, Lord. And everything's changed. And he came in me. And then shortly after that, I surrendered. I said, Lord, I don't know what you want to do with me. I've sure made a mess of things, haven't I? But Lord, whatever you want of my life, take me. Take me and use me. I, was, I was, had a nice, cushy position with General Electric. I was so promoted that I became a professional lunch and dinner eater. <laughs> and God said, I want you to leave. I want you to pastor this little church. I want you to start this little startup church. We're in that auto parts store. And my father thought I was out of my mind. Are you out of your mind? You're throwing your life away. Why would you do something so stupid? It's not stupid at all. I didn't throw my life away. I gave my life away to Jesus. Happy. Some of you here this morning, you haven't really surrendered to Jesus. You haven't experienced that in experience with the Holy Spirit. And there's many of you here that you've experienced the in experience, but you haven't experienced the epi because you haven't surrendered. You want your life. You want to live your life. You don't want to live his life. He cannot, listen to me, he cannot empower a servant he cannot trust. When you really surrender and yield your life, then you'll, you'll be empowered. That epi, empowerment of the Spirit. We don't do altar calls. This is as close as it comes. <laughs> because I don't want you to make an emotional response. I want you to make a volitional surrender of your heart and your will to Jesus. I want you to trust him, even though you don't know him well yet. Everybody here that has walked with Jesus and knows you can trust him with everything. Give me an amen. amen. So talk to any of them. They, they, listen, they can bear testimony. I've been walking with Jesus for 42 years. He's never, ever, ever let me down or disappointed me or caused me to be ashamed of the decision I made to follow him, ever. Nor will anybody, ever. You understand that? 
Paul says that no one will ever be put to shame because you trusted Jesus. Oh, there'll be a, a world of people who are going to regret they didn't trust him. So we're going to take a minute. As David comes forward, he's going to close us with a, a final worship song. But we're going to take a minute. And right now, in the quietness of your own heart and your own mind, if, if you know that God has been alongside you trying to get you to make that decision and you haven't, do that. If you know that you've made that decision, that Christ dwells within you, but you've really never really surrendered your life and you wonder why I don't have any power, then surrender it now. And listen, please, if, if, if you need to leave, get up and leave now because I want the next few minutes to be given to the Lord, to do what only the Lord can do in a person's mind and heart, soul and spirit and giving you eyes to see and ears to hear. Let's just take a few minutes in, 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 of silence and prayer. And then in a few minutes, Pastor David will, will lead us in a song and a final prayer.